Isaiah 53, starting at verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we pray that it would uh, penetrate into hearts, especially hard hearts and hard heads. Uh, we thank you, Father, for the power of your word, and we ask you to have it uh, open us up, make us uh, be transformed into the image of your Son. And we thank you, Father, for this prophecy made so long ago uh, concerning his sacrifice. In his name we pray. Amen. Uh, this verse is kind of short. We've been going through all of these one at a time, and I try to take each clause at a time, each thought at a time. And uh, this one is fairly brief. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied is the first sentence. And that's really clear. And what's maybe not as clear, isn't as obvious, is that uh, what's pictured here is actually labor, women's labor. And uh, yet this is an analogy that is used to reflect on how Christ experienced that much pain and yet the satisfaction that came from that and the joy that came after that. In other words, all that he had suffered, all that he had sacrificed was worth it because the baby came and then all the pain was forgotten. And so in the same way that that's true for a woman, it was true of Christ. All that he had uh, had occasion to potentially fear was now done. It was over and done with. Now the next clause is interesting and, uh, and it kind of all knits together and so I'll address them all simultaneously. By his knowledge my righteous servant shall justify many for he shall bear their iniquities. Now the middle clause there my righteous servant shall justify many is very clear. I don't think it's uh, very easy for us to misunderstand that. Um, my righteous servant shall justify many. We all know this to be true. And yet, the first three words, by his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, and you really have to wonder what that means. How is it that it is this knowledge that justifies many? And you have to wonder about that. As I read commentaries on this, I didn't agree with a lot of them because what they did is they twisted this around to be this being a knowledge that's in us, that's in man. For instance, uh, knowledge of him and faith in him, knowledge of him which is no other than faith in him, knowledge of him, knowledge of Christ, knowledge of what he's done. In other words, our knowledge of him, our acceptance of him as our savior. And this doesn't make sense given the context. The sentence says, by his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many. So it's by his knowledge. It's not by our knowledge of him. It's his knowledge. So the question then is, what does it mean? Because if you think about it, just read that sentence. By his knowledge, he shall justify many. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many. Does that mean that knowledge in itself is salvific? Did Christ's knowledge somehow save us? 
That's what that sentence seems to imply. But yet, read on. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. So we see where the justification comes from, right? It's the following sentence that qualifies the justification. My righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. That is a complete thought. It could say that. Instead, it begins with, by his knowledge. So what does it mean? It must mean something, right? It doesn't mean nothing or else it wouldn't be there. So, the Bible clearly refers to this as Christ's knowledge, right? It's not ours, it's his. And we know that it can't be salvific because it goes on to explain what saved. It was his sacrifice that saved. It wasn't his knowledge. So now, what is it that Jesus knows? What is this knowledge of? Let me take you to John 5. In John 5, the whole chapter really is him healing a man and then the Jews attacking him for this healing because it was done on the Sabbath. And then we have this extended uh, lecture by Jesus to these people who are criticizing him. And he says this, You are not willing to come to me that you may have eternal life, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in you. So what is it that is being referred to here when Jesus says, I know you? We have a word for it. It's a big word. It starts with an O. God is omnipotent, right? God is omnipresent, right? But God is omniscient. He knows everything. So Jesus is referring to his own omniscience in saying this. I know you, that you do not have the love of God in you. So Christ is referring to his knowledge of us, this intimate knowledge of who we are, of what we believe, of exactly what's in our hearts. Now, if you look up the word know, of course, it's very common, and there are lots and lots of occurrences in the Bible. And yet, in the Gospels alone, there are 211 occurrences of know or its variant. And yet, almost half are in John. And so you can think of John as the gospel of knowing. John is all about writing about God knowing us and us knowing God. Both are true. In John 10, Jesus says this, I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep. Later on at 1026, he says, you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. Again, it's all based on knowledge. When Jesus returned from the grave, when he was interacting with various of the apostles and disciples at different points, this is what he said to Peter when Peter had responded the third time to Jesus' question about, uh, do you love me, Peter? Do you love me, Peter? This is what Peter said back to Christ after the third time. Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Now we know that that hurt Peter deeply, and yet he still spoke very clearly of faith. You know my heart. You know that I love you. So see, we have a knowledge of God that's in us, that God 
sees, that God senses the reality of. So that is the knowledge, I believe, that is being spoken of in Isaiah 53, 11. It says, He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. By his knowledge. There is the Lamb's book of life, right? There are names written in that book. There are people who will go to heaven to be with Jesus. There are people that will not. This is knowledge. This reflects what Christ knows about all of our hearts. So, in light of that, we know believers know God. But more importantly, we know God knows believers. We all can deceive one another. We are all human. We are all finite. We all can be deceived, and we often are deceived. Yet God is not deceived. God knows all of our hearts. He knows who of us believe. He knows who of us does not believe. And yet, again from John, Jesus said this, The one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. So see, salvation is still all about us clinging to God. Yes, there is omniscience at work, but we're not part of that omniscience. What we know is what we've been commanded. We've been commanded to repent. We've been commanded to go to Christ for salvation. And Christ himself says, the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. So when we come to the table, we come ideally as believers, knowing in our heart that Christ has saved us. And we repent of the sin that we've committed this week. We repent of the sin that we want to commit next week. And yet, too many people come to this table without having belief in their hearts. They pretend, but they don't believe. And yet God knows us. He will catch us out in our unbelief. And so I encourage anyone who knows they don't know God to admit that. The first step in solving a problem is admitting that you have one, right? And so if you don't know God, you must admit that. Share it with your family. Share it with these elders. Share it with someone who loves you, who knows God. And we can introduce you to God. So as we come to the table, let's revel in the fact that God knows us. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the power of knowledge, but the power of action as well. This verse so clearly portrays both at work. Your plan, your knowledge, your omniscience, and yet you're culminating all of this in time and doing all that the Father had called you to do to uh, redeem us. Father, we thank you for having sent Jesus uh, to do this for us. We thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us now to come to a greater knowledge of this and to a greater uh, love for you and appreciation for what you have done for us. And we pray now, Lord, that these elements would benefit our body, soul, and spirit, that we would be more uh, inclined from this time forward to walk with you in obedience to the truth. And we thank you for this in Christ's name. Amen.